Amen. Well, thank you, choir, worship team, everybody. Got a couple new faces up there this morning. Hey, we still got to fill up that third row, mind you. So some of you are holding out on us, and so you need to get up there in the choir. Hey, you can blend right in. It's okay, all right? You know, so it'll all be good. But we encourage you to be a part of that. They do such a great job. Um, but First Samuel chapter one. If you have your Bibles, First Samuel chapter one. We begin a new series today. And as you can see on the screens, it's on prayer. And this four-part message series will cover what prayer is, what it isn't, how we pray, some practical things there, why we ought to pray, the significance of prayer. But first, I kind of want to start with kind of a basic calling that I feel the Lord is just impressing upon us, whether we realize it or not. And that calling is to pray, to pray. Because I'm convinced when cultures or communities, yes, even churches, when we become so distant from God or so disinterested, complacent, apathetic in God and towards God, I'm convinced that God intentionally drives us sometimes into destitution. This word that means destitute, that means to be stripped bare to be lacking, to be found with nothing. It's kind of this extreme poverty. Destitute could be physical means, but it also could be emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, relationally. I'm convinced that he strips us bare to the point where we are found lacking and wanting, where we enter a season of recognition and acknowledgement that we are nothing without Jesus. That apart from Jesus, we are nothing. And that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. As he says, apart from me, you will do absolutely nothing. So I'm convinced that God intentionally drives us into destitution in order to produce in us desperation. Specifically, desperation for him. Where we are willing to do anything and everything just to draw near to God, the creator and the sustainer of everything, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, the one that we just draw near to, so as to create through us transformation. Transformation on an individual level, a family level, a community level, a church level, a culture level, transformation on a micro level, and on a macro level. But I'm convinced that God sometimes intentionally drives us into destitution in order to produce in us desperation so as to create through us transformation. And this has everything to do with prayer. Ultimately, he's calling us to pray, and I hope we see this in this series, but I want to start today with this desperate prayer. A kind of prayer birthed out of destitution that leads to transformation. Think of it like this. We, and if I were to just say Ireland, I think this is about what we would picture. Beautiful island, probably some sheep. They have a lot of sheep there. Some rolling green hills, some thick green grass, right? Like, what is that, you know? Like, this is what we would picture. But in Ireland, in the 1840s, I think this picture does a little bit more in painting to us what it was like. 
Because in the 1840s, Ireland had a catastrophic famine that led to a mass exodus from the island. It was one of the worst humanitarian disasters of the 19th century. It became known as the Great Famine or the Great Hunger because with this famine came a period of mass starvation and disease from 1845 to 1849. Something like one million people died in Ireland. And the famine and its effects changed the demographic. It changed the political scene. It changed the cultural landscape. It produced an estimated two million refugees. And it spurred a century-long, a hundred-year-long population decline. And out of all of that came political and economic divides, red versus blue, if you will. A deep hatred, people pointing fingers, people blaming this person and that person, this party and that person, or that party, people divided on the direction of how to get out of this. There was a deep hatred. Substance abuse ended up going on the rise. Alcohol abuse was rampant during this time. Prostitution became very prevalent. Crime just exploded. The morality of Ireland just became broken and dark. Churches were dry, apathetic, indifferent, cold, lukewarm, not interested in God and what God had to say about all of it or what he was doing in the midst of all of it. Ultimately, the communities, the culture, and even the church was driven into destitution. This picture almost sums it up. They were stripped, left with nothing, bare and found wanting and searching. But in the spring of 1856, nearly 10 years after, or a little over 10 years after the famine hit, there was an English lady by the name of Mrs. Colville. Mrs. Colville came to Ireland. She had, as she would say, time and money to spend for God. And as a missionary, in a way, she started talking to people in Ireland, trying to reach them. She was desperate for God to move among this destitute people. But in November, after like six months, she returned home to England in low spirits. She thought that God had not acknowledged her work at all. She felt that her work had been unfruitful, a waste of time. But she was wrong. Just a few days before Mrs. Colville left Ireland and went back to England, she was visiting with a few ladies, just a few of them, having a deep conversation about the gospel and Jesus and everything, and she's talking with them, and the conversation went absolutely nowhere with these ladies. But little did Miss Colville know, she had no idea about this, standing in earshot of this conversation was a man, and the man was listening in on this conversation. And through that conversation, Miss Colville had no idea. Through that conversation, this gentleman gave his life to Jesus. His name was James McQuilkin. He surrenders his life to the Lord, and a year later, a year later, after leading a couple of his friends to the Lord, him and three other guys began to meet in this little schoolhouse. 
So here it was, autumn 1857, James McQuilkin and these three other guys in the schoolhouse, and they began to pray. Remember, the, the communities, the culture, the church was destitute. And so here they are, the four of them, in this little schoolhouse, just praying. And it was a desperate prayer. They were hungry for the Lord, hungry for his presence, hungry for his movement. They prayed. They prayed for themselves. They prayed for their culture. They prayed for their community. They prayed for their church. They prayed. Months go by. And throughout the next couple of years, God slowly but surely began to move little by little. To the point where thousands upon thousands came to know Jesus and were radically transformed. Thousands and thousands began to gather for prayer gatherings. People were repenting, fasting, weeping. They began to pray. Their destitution brought about a desperation, which eventually led to a transformation. People stopped drinking. Distilleries in Ireland had to shut their doors. People were flocking from the life of prostitution. Crime rates plummeted. Churches were packed. Morality was radically changed. And this movement of God became known as the 1859 revival in Ulster. And this revival is still felt even today in Northern Ireland. Many believers today can trace their roots back to that movement. An unusual, unknown, desperate Christian lady was used by God in ways that she didn't even know about in the conversion of this James McQuilkin. And this one gentleman and the three other guys became so desperate for God that these gentlemen became the significant figures in this 1859 revival in Ulster. Out of destitution came desperation, which created transformation. It began with one woman, a few men, that were desperate for the Lord, and God used that desperation to create through them a transformation on a micro level, yes, but also on a macro level. God is calling us to pray. To pray. In the same way that he was calling them to pray in Ireland. The same way in which he was calling Hannah in her destitution to pray. As 1 Samuel chapter 1 opens up, the state of the culture was destitute. The community, God's people, they were destitute. The people of God were distant. They were disinterested in God. They were apathetic. As you keep reading throughout 1 Samuel, you come to discover that they were worshiping idols. They were indifferent to his word. God was hardly speaking in those days. And they were led by their leaders. It began at the top and it worked its way down. Specifically, these two priests named Hophni and Phinehas. They were Eli's sons. They abused their powers. They bullied the people. They stole They treated the sacrifices like a joke. They were selfish, arrogant, full of pride. It was terrible, and it gets even worse. They were sleeping with the women who worked and served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Literally, this would be the equivalent of it. 
the pastors sleeping with women in the church and nobody caring. Because Eli finds out about this. He's the great high priest. He's the lead pastor, if you will. And he does absolutely nothing. It's almost horrific to think about the state and how destitute the people were. And what's more is that on a personal level, Hannah's life was even more miserable. Not only is she living in a destitute culture and community, but she's married to this guy by the name of Elkanah, and Elkanah has another wife named Penina, and Penina has all of these sons and daughters. She's blessed with a lot of kids, which is a big deal in that day. But Hannah does not have any kids. And so as a result, as we're told, Hannah's rival, Penina, her opponent, her enemy, this other wife of her husband, would provoke her grievously, as we read in verse 6, grievously to irritate Hannah. She would bully her to the point where Hannah was just broken, weeping and grieving on the inside. And this went on, as we're told, year after year after year, especially when they'd go to Shiloh for the big sacrifices and, and, and festival and everything. And as a result, we're told that Hannah would just weep and weep and weep, and she wouldn't even eat anything. This is the state of the culture and the state of Hannah. Hannah is so oppressed, she's so depressed, broken and hopeless that she was truly at the end of herself, destitute, stripped bare, with nothing to the point that she was so sick inside she couldn't even eat. And here's what's interesting. We're told this in verse 5 and in verse 6. It was the Lord who closed her womb. So in the midst of this community crisis and this cultural crisis, God comes to Hannah and closes her womb and drives her even into more destitution. So here's everyone, they're celebrating, they're eating at these festivals, their hearts are full. Penina's having a great time, but not Hannah. Hannah's miserable. I mean, just picture like a, you know, for us, like a Thanksgiving dinner or a Christmas dinner or an Easter celebration or something like that, and everybody's celebrating. This is a time of Thanksgiving and rejoicing and, and eating and, and all of that good stuff, and then you have somebody over here who's just so bent in depression and oppression that they can't even pull themselves to eat. Hannah is destitute. But then we read that one year, verse 10, that one year, there they are in Shiloh, this big festival, and Hannah gets up and she was so deeply distressed, so deeply distressed, her her soul was just in anguish. And out of that destitution, she prayed. She prayed. She prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And this is what her prayer was. She vowed a vow and said to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, if you will just indeed look on the affliction of your servant, don't miss the anguish in this prayer. This is a desperate prayer. Lord, if you would just look upon me, don't forget about me. Don't you understand what I'm going through? 
Don't you understand the, the horror in my family? Don't you understand the horror in our community? Just look upon me in my affliction. If you would just do that and remember me and don't forget about me, but if you would just give to me a son, I'm your servant. You know who I am. If you would just give to me a son, then I will give him right back to you. I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And it goes on to say that a razor will not even touch his head. This is kind of the Nazarene vow. In other words, he will be completely dedicated to you. If you would just look upon me, if you would just remember me and give me this, I'll give him right back to you. I'll give it all to you. It's a prayer of desperation that's produced out of destitution. I mean, she is proclaiming to the Lord, I will hand over my rights as his mother to you. You can have them. I just want you, Lord. I need you. I need you to look upon me again. I need your presence. I need your power. I need your favor. I need your deliverance. I need your healing. I need you to move. To move in my life. To move in my family's life. Because I can't take it anymore. This went on for year after year after year. She was done. Empty, destitute. And out of that destitution came desperation. She truly was willing to do anything. Even give up the very thing that she most desperately wanted. She was desperate. This, in a way, is what that looks like. This is about the best illustration I could come up with to try to paint for you, how desperate she was, willing to do anything and everything just for the Lord to look upon her, to move. This is the illustration. This is Aaron Ralston. If you've seen the movie 127 Hours, the movie's about him, and you'll know where I'm going. But Aaron Ralston was a mountain climber. He climbed mountains, but he turned to being a canyoneer canyoneer is somebody who goes to these big canyons and things, especially like in Utah, and they climb around, and they do some rock climbing with it and everything like that. His favorite place was Blue John Canyon in Utah, and this just kind of gives you a little bit of imagery there. The Blue John Canyon in Utah is part of the, the Red Rock country, they call it, in Utah, and it's this beautiful place, and there's all these canyons there, so these guys will go out, they'll hike, they'll climb around, and so Aaron Ralston, he would navigate these narrow passages, he would free climb at times, do these dangerous jumps. This is what he would do for, in his free time. Well, one day, he was negotiating a 10-foot drop with a 3-foot wide opening. So he's just kind of navigating this opening, trying to maneuver along, keep along his deal. He's listening to music. He's just having a good time. Well, as he's above this 10-foot drop with a 3-foot wide opening here, he grabs a hold of this boulder, thinking that it's pretty strong and secure. And as he grabs hold of that boulder, kind of to, to pull himself or to do whatever he's about to do, the boulder dislodged. And he says, this is his own words, he says, I go from being out on a lark in this beautiful place, just being so happy and carefree to like, oh my goodness, wow. So he falls a few feet And for him, this all happens in slow motion. 
He falls a few feet, and he looks up, and that boulder is coming down. This 800-pound boulder. And it's coming down, and so he just, I mean, just natural reaction is going to move himself out of this situation. Well, as he moves himself, he kind of puts his right arm up on the wall, and as he does that, the boulder just comes and smashes his right arm and hand against the wall of this little drop or this canyon. And now he's stuck. It's like this freak accident weird thing. And so now this boulder's sitting there, and he is literally stuck. And I have a picture of him just sitting there, stuck. (laughs) He said at first it was just a stunned moment of what just happened. (laughs) He said it it was almost comic. So there he is stuck in the Red Rock country of Utah, in this 10-foot hole, and all he has is a small sack with less than a gallon of water, two burritos, and a few chunks of chocolate. That's all the food and water he had, and he had no cell phone. And probably the most foolish thing of all, he hadn't told anybody where he was going that day. Now, he did this a lot where he'd go out and do this, but he hadn't told anybody where he was, when he was going out, so nobody knew where he was. So he's literally stuck in the middle of nowhere, trapped with a little bit of food and water. He had a dull knife from this multi-tool kit that he would carry with him all the time. He said the knife was hardly sharp enough to cut butter, let alone rock, But there he is with this dull knife trying to just break that rock. You can see in the picture, just trying to break it and break it and break it. And this would go on for hour after hour after hour after hour to the point where he realized this isn't going to work. So then he decides that he's going to have to remove his arm. So he takes that dull knife and punctures his skin with it. But then he hits bone and realizes that if it ain't going to cut rock, it's not going to cut bone. At that point, it sank in. He was destitute. He had nothing. He had now become nothing. He was going to die. This was the end. Stripped of everything. No hope. Done. But out of that destitution came desperation. And in a fit, an anguish, a deep distress, a desperate rage, he realized, if I break the arm, then I can cut. He was on top of the world. Life before him. And then he fell, literally, into destitution which produced in him desperation for six days, 127 hours he's out there, where he was willing to do whatever he needed to get what he needed, even giving up the very thing that he wanted the most at that moment, his arm free. Well, the good news is Aaron Ralston is now a motivational speaker. He survived but his life has radically been transformed out of this experience. 
I say all of this, not to like gross you out on this Sunday morning, right? But to try to paint for you the picture of Hannah's desperation. She was so desperate to get what she needed, for God just to look upon her again, just to be present in her life, just to move in her life, that she was willing to give up the very thing that she most desperately, desperately wanted. She was pleading for the Lord in desperate prayer, but through that desperation, God brought transformation. Not just in her life, but also in the life of the community, the nation of Israel, which would spill out over into the culture. As you keep reading on through chapter 2, you would see that God blessed her with kids. He blessed her with a full home. But ultimately, through her, God created Samuel. There's a reason this book starts off with this kind of setting. God created Samuel, a Samuel who grew up with a heart for the Lord, who grew up serving the Lord, who grew up faithful to the Lord, a kind of boy, a kind of child that could bring about transformation. And years and years later, when you get to like 1 Samuel chapter 7, there's Samuel all grown up, and he's standing before the house of Israel. We got rid of Eli and his sons, thankfully, and he's standing before before the house, before the community, the people. And he tells them, if you're returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then it starts here. Put away your idols and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And if you would do that, he would deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines, out of your opponent, out of your rival. You can only wonder if he thought of his mother. So the people of Israel, they did just that. They put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Remember how destitute the culture and the community was. Now here they are serving the Lord under Samuel's leadership. That's transformation. It was a kind of transformation that they saw in Ireland in the 1800s. And it came down to, or it came from, Hannah's desperation. That's the big reason why our third child, Hannah, is named Hannah. Because the Lord, I was walking through this passage at the time, we were getting ready to name her, and just thinking, man, what can God do generations from now? It brought transformation. Her desperate prayers changed things. It ended up changing the leadership. It ended up changing the community. It ended up changing the culture. And I look at our culture and our communities and our churches across the board. It's very similar. There's political and economic divide. There's deep hatred. Substance abuse is skyrocketing. There's sexual promiscuity everywhere. Crime is exploding. Morality is broken. And so many churches are apathetic and indifferent, cold and lukewarm, not interested in God. Mental illnesses have become a crippling issue for so many. We're in a mess. 
And we talk a lot about prayer. We talk a lot about doctrine and theology. But so few of us are praying. And we're in a mess individually. Marriages, families. Even though all the self-help books just keep exploding and multiplying, we just get more and more of a mess. Physically, financially, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, we are oppressed and depressed. Destitute. But what if God is driving us into destitution? What if He's the one that's trying to strip us bare to where we're lacking, wanting, so that we might recognize and acknowledge that we are nothing and have nothing and will do nothing apart from Him in order to produce in us desperation for Him, where we are willing to do anything and everything just to draw near to God, just for Him to look upon us again, so as to create through us transformation. What if he's calling us into desperate prayer? The kind of prayer where we are so overwhelmed to the point of death. So desperate we're sweating like drops of blood. A kind of anguish in our soul, a kind of pit of destitution in which we cry out, I just want you, I just need you. Not my will in anything, but your will be done in everything. What if everything we're going through is a calling from the Lord to pray? To quit talking about it. But to finally, maybe perhaps, experience our theology, as Timothy Keller would say. Tyler Statton, he's a pastor in Portland, and he just published a book called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, and he shares a story from when he was in, going into the eighth grade, and the Lord impressed upon his heart to pray, pray specifically for the culture of his school, going into eighth grade, and so he gets a yearbook. And the summer leading up to that school year, every day, every week, he would just go to the school with that yearbook and literally walk the grounds of the campus, praying for his classmates, praying for the teachers, praying for the culture in the classrooms and the, and the hallways, just praying for his school. He did this so much that that yearbook, by the end of the summer, was just tattered and torn and just worn. So at the end of the summer, after all that praying, he goes to the, uh, the principal and says, hey, can I start an extracurricular kind of Bible study, a Christian group where you just meet? And the principal's like, sure, but you have to get a teacher to sponsor you if you're going to be meeting here on grounds. So Tyler gets a teacher to sponsor him, and they begin every Tuesday and Thursday as the school starts to meet in this little math classroom, dingy lighting, dingy classroom, him and maybe three others, kind of like the boys in Ireland. And over the course of that first semester, they would grow out of that math classroom and have to meet in the auditorium. Tuesdays and Thursdays, eighth graders, meeting at like 6 a.m. By the end of the school year, a third of the entire class had surrendered their lives to Jesus. Tyler could see the destitution of his classmates. 
And out of that, it brought desperation, so much so that he actually prayed. And God created through that desperation, transformation. What if everything we're going through is him calling us to pray? For your workplace, for your school, for your neighborhood, for our leaders, for our community, for our churches. A kind of prayer that Hannah prayed. A desperate prayer. Birthed out of destitution because we know we need it. A kind of prayer that the psalmist wrote here. I, just, I don't have the words on the script, but I just want to finish by reading this prayer. Hear my prayer, Lord. Let my cry for help, let it come to you. Look upon us. Don't hide your face from me when I'm in distress. Turn your ear to me when I call. Just answer me quickly. Because my days, they're vanishing like smoke. My bones, they burn like glowing embers. My heart is just blighted. It's just beaten down, withered like grass. And I forget to even eat my food. Is this not Hannah's prayer? And so in my distress, I groan aloud. And I'm reduced to skin and bones. I'm like a desert owl, like an owl among the ruins. I lie awake. I become like a bird alone on a roof. Isolation, lonely. And all day long, my enemies, they just taunt me. Those who rail against me, they use my name as a curse. I eat ashes as my food. I mingle my drink with tears. It's all because of your great wrath. You closed my womb. For you have taken me up. You are the one who's thrown me aside. My days are like the evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But Lord, I know that you sit enthroned forever. I know that your renown endures through all generations, and I know that you will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it's time to show favor to her. Please, the appointed time has come. For her stones are dear to your servants. Her very dust moves them to pity. The nations will fear the name of the Lord. All the kings of the earth will revere your glory, for the Lord will rebuild Zion and appear in his glory. How do I know this? Because he will respond to the prayer of the destitute. He will not despise their plea. So perhaps God is driving us into destitution to produce in us this kind of desperate prayer so that through that he can create a transformation. So during this time of invitation, as our heads are bowed, eyes are closed, as the team comes forward, It's time we recognize that God is calling us to pray. And maybe even as I speak, you're like, man, I need to come and just start praying. Praying for my marriage, praying for my family, praying for those not yet born. Just praying. Praying for my community. Praying for my classmates, my coworkers, my bosses, my employees. Praying for my neighbors by name. Praying for my streets. Praying for the addictions. Praying for the brokenness and those in destitution. Praying for our churches. That something would awaken in us a hunger, a desperation for God to move again. For God to be present again. 
for God to deliver, to heal, to save, to transform. What if God is just waiting for us to pray? It's time to pray. So even as I pray, I challenge you to come forward and start praying. There in your seat, yes, but even on these steps, begin to pray. He's calling us into prayer. Father, we come to you. Some of us, Lord, with anguish in our souls. Marriages, families, relationships, physical, emotional, spiritual. We, there's a heavy malaise on us, and it's been here for a little while, and it just keeps getting worse and worse, and we try self-help this, self-help that. We keep looking to ourselves. Lord, perhaps you're just driving us into destitution so that we'd recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing, we are nothing, we have nothing. Perhaps, Lord, you're trying to awaken in us a desperation for you. For this has been going on for year after year after year. We're oppressed and depressed. Lord, many of us are coming to you right now like Hannah. We're done, we're finished. We have nothing. But we're so desperate that if you would just give us the very thing we want, we'll give it right back to you. We don't care. We just want you. Lord, help us to be like Jesus in the garden, so full of distress, so in anguish, so desperate for you to take that cup from him, yet he pleaded, not my will, but your will be done. So Lord, let your will be done in our lives, whatever that is. But Lord, let us recognize that you are calling us to pray. And not just for a moment. Every day, every month, every week, every year. However long it takes, whatever it takes, just to pray. It's only you that can change churches. It's only you that can change communities. It's only you that can change cultures. Lord, we know that intellectually, but do we know it experientially? And I think not for many of us. So, Lord, please, God, Holy Spirit, Jesus, Father in heaven, help us to experience our theology we talk so much about. Help us just to experience you. We want you. So, Lord, help us to pray. Teach us how to pray. May we just pray. In Christ's name I pray. I ask that you stand. Come forward. These steps are open. I'm going to be down here. Come talk to me if you need to. But this invitation is for you to respond.